I am on, yes. We're going to continue our series on the book of Titus, and we're looking at Titus chapter 2 today, verses 1 to 10. Uh, after um, Paul has, in his letter to Titus, he's greeted Titus, he has in, instructed Titus to appoint leaders and elders in the church on Crete before he leaves so that they will be teaching sound doctrine and helping the church live in light of the truth. And then he, last week we looked at how he was saying how to deal with those who are contaminating the truth, who are contaminating the gospel and the church's understanding of the gospel. And, uh, and now in chapter 2, he turns to some, some really practical instructions, commands of how the church, how the people in the church should be living their lives um, so that their lives are consistent with the truth. He says, teach what's, what, what accords with sound doctrine, what is, in, what is consistent with sound doctrine, with healthy doctrine, with what, what is true. And that's what we're looking at today because uh, it's important. Um, uh, Paul is encouraging Titus to, to think about the fact that it's important how, uh, to, to address how the church is living for um, many reasons, but, but one of those reasons is because it, it impacts how other people interact with God and understand who he is and understand what Christianity is about and what the truth is about. So, so listen to God's word as I read from Titus 2, verses 1 to 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing all, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us as we look at this passage. We, we need you. We need your help. We need you to open our eyes to your truth. We need you to help us to, to understand what you are saying here to us. And we need you to shape our hearts and to change our hearts and to help us to become the people that you call us to be. That those around us and, and this world would be blessed by what you are doing in us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Americans are so loud and obnoxious. I lived just south of London, England, when I was going into high school, and I overheard a British person saying these exact words, and I was, like, I was offended. I was like, that's not true. How can you say something like that? All Americans are so loud and obnoxious and... Uh, but, but even though I was offended and I, and I, I was like, you know, I, I disagreed with what the person said, I, uh, it made me more aware and pay, it made me pay attention more to, you know, how people might have perceived me and my friends as we took the train in and, and walked the streets of London in our American school jackets, you know. 
And, and as we did that over the, over the years, I, I, I came to realize that that was absolutely true. Americans are all loud and obnoxious. I, I mean, the way that, that I mean, I, I'm, I'm a pretty quiet guy, but even just guilty by association, the way that me and my friends would, you know, draw attention to ourselves, would make a spectacle of ourselves, would cross lines of what people would say are, you know, polite or appropriate in order to be funny. And, and, uh, and, and I, I came to see that, uh, that we weren't doing, you know, Americans any favors when we were hanging out in London. Um, we, we failed to recognize that the way that we were behaving and interacting with each other was totally impacting the perception of other people about what Americans are like, about understanding what Americans are like. And in this passage, Paul encourages Titus to help Christians in Crete see how their behavior will impact how others see God and understand God and understand what Christianity is about. They, they had a responsibility both to defend the truth of what God said, of, of the gospel, and, and also an opportunity to put a spotlight on the beauty of the gospel. And how they lived their lives, how they interacted with each other, was crucial to that task. Totally had an impact on how everybody else understood the gospel and, and, and saw God. Um, and I, I think it's crucial for us to recognize that as well, that, uh, that in addition to, to, to taking every opportunity to talk about who God is and what he's done for us, but just the way that we live our lives and the way that we behave and the way that we interact with one another as Christians has an absolute impact on the people around us that don't know God and don't know the truth. And, and so, so Paul talks a lot about behavior here, right, in these verses, but what is his point? What is he getting at? And I think you see his first point in verse 5 and then again in verse 8. In verse 5, after he says, you know, he, he gives instruction to older men, older women, he, he says, um, so that the word of God may not be reviled at the end of verse 5. And then at the end of verse 8, he says, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. His whole point in, in giving these specific instructions right here is so that they would, it would silence opponents to the gospel. It would silence opponents to the truth of God. He addresses four different categories of people, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. And so in essence, he's addressing everyone here. There's nobody that isn't included in these categories, right? And in some way, Every single one of these people in these different categories were living in ways that were giving opponents reason to say, see, they, they haven't discovered anything unique or significant or true or life-changing. So why should I bother paying attention? Or maybe, you know, what they've discovered isn't really the truth. And so that's why these, these other people we talked about last week were, were kind of gaining a foothold of, of contaminating the truth and, and saying, well, that's not really what's true. It's because, one of the reasons is because of the way that they're behaving. Um, and so Paul's encouraging them to, to give attention to how they are living and, and the qualities that, that, that are being displayed in their lives. And I'm not going to go through all of these, but, but I want to just focus on, on one especially, and maybe a couple others just really, you know, t just touch on a couple others. The, the one that I want to really pay attention to is one that they all have in common. 
Did you notice that? Paul, Paul addresses each group of people and, and there's one thing that every single one of them he says you need to deal with, you need to take care of, and, and it has to do with self-control, right? He says to the older men, be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. He says to the young women that they would be learning to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled. When he addresses the young men, he says, he's, Titus to address the young men, he says that they might be self-controlled. The only people that he, doesn't, that he doesn't say they should be self-controlled to is the older women. But what does he say to them? He says that they shouldn't be slanderers or slaves to much wine. That sounds very related to self-control, doesn't it? The way that we use our words in talking about people. Um, being slaves to, to much wine. Um, I think every single one of these people, every single one of these groups of people was maybe not being as self-controlled as they could be. And, and, and the reality is, is that that in and of itself is one big reason that, that people around us who don't know God seize upon to say, well, these guys aren't any different than anybody else. They haven't found anything significant. They haven't experienced anything really life-changing because look at the way that they you know, respond to those who who make them angry. There's a lack of self-control there. Look at the way that they use their words to judge others and to, as, as he says, slander people. Um, there's not a whole lot of self-control there. This is a common reason that, that those outside the church have for reviling God's word and condemning the church. It's because of our lack of self-control. When a person discovers the gospel message that it is not what I do that earns me forgiveness, that, that God loves me even though I'm a sinner, it can be easy for us to be like, oh, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter. I don't really give, need to give that much attention to, to, to like being careful with my words or being careful how I to interact with people because God loves me just as I am. So that's maybe one, one kind of danger that we, we fall into, that, that we don't have to worry about self-control. We don't have to worry about being careful with how we respond to people who make us angry or frustrate us or how we respond to, to, to difficult circumstances in our lives. And I think there's a number of reasons that's a wrong attitude to, to take, but one of them is that it gives the outside church reasons to dismiss God. It gives, it gives, it gives those outside of the church reasons to dismiss God. Um, and it makes total sense, I think, for why Paul zeroes in on this quality, this, this attribute, that being self-controlled in the, in the way that we, that we speak, in the, in, the, in the things that we do, in the decisions that we make, in the way that we react to things in life and to people in life. But that's not the only thing that he, that he focuses on. He also focuses on other things. I mean, one of, one of the things is he, he talks about, um, you know, in, in the first chapter, if you remember, one of the things that, that, was, uh, that the, those who are contaminating the gospel were causing, were, were real problems in families. It, it talks about in chapter one that, that because of shameful game, they were, they were, they were causing, there were families who were being upset, right? And maybe there was a real, real issue of, of, of families being kind of torn apart or real, real kind of uh, uh, difficulty and, and tension in families. And so I think it makes a lot of sense that one of the things that, that t- Paul urges Titus to do is to teach the older women to, to encourage the younger women to be about solving that problem and creating a space of, with, with those uh, in their home where, where it's, it's, it's unified and loving, you know? Um, 
He also addresses the, the young men, both Titus and, and the young men, about, about uh, being men of integrity, making sure that, that our inner life matches our outer life, that our private life matches our public life, that we are consistent people. Because again, the way that we interact with, with those closest to us, the way that we interact as, as in people of integrity are, are reasons that, that maybe people would look at us and be like, well, are they any different than anybody else? And so one of the things that, that I think the reason that, that Paul is telling Titus to address these, these characteristics of the people, and it's not just negative things, it's also positive things, right? He, he, he wants them to, to show love as he talks to the older men. He, he wants them to do good works, right? Um, he wants them to show kindness. And, and he, he's, in, he's urging the, the church to be a place that is so... Um, so that is a place of such integrity and of self-control and of beauty and goodness and kindness and love that those who are looking on have absolutely nothing to say, have nothing negative to say, can't say anything. The stereotypical food critic in the movies is always this guy that everybody's terrified of. You know, when he walks in the restaurant, they're like, oh, let's get ready. He's going to say something negative and he's going to destroy us, right? I don't know if how many of you guys have seen the movie Ratatouille, but in the movie Ratatouille, one of the, one of the villains is this food critic named Anton Ego. And he's, you know, he's all dressed in black and he's like, you know, got this constant frown upon his face and, and he's just, you know... Uh, never joyful, never happy, and he walks through the doors and everybody is immediately just like, oh man, here it comes. Whatever we do, he's going to have something negative to say. And so then at the climax of the movie, um, he sits down and, and they serve him this, this simple plate, um, this peasant dish of ratatouille, and, and he looks at it, you know, kind of skeptical, and then, but then he, he, he takes a bite, and when he takes that bite he is immediately transported to his childhood. It, it, it touches a nerve in him and evokes these deep feelings, these emotions. And then it pans back to his face and his eyes are wide. He has nothing to say. And then there's this, you know, this, this like just dramatic moment when the pen falls out of his hand and tumbles in slow motion to the ground and crashes on the ground. You know, this, this symbolic moment. He has nothing to write. He has nothing to say because this is so incredibly good. And I think that's what Paul is encouraging Titus to encourage the church to exhibit a, a, a community, a life, a way of living where, where it, it is so um, beautiful and good that, that those who interact with us, those who see us, have nothing to say, nothing negative to say, because it is so beautiful and good. But however, while we have a responsibility to silence opponents, we actually have an opportunity. And that's pointed out here, right at the end of the passage. We have an opportunity to adorn the gospel. Um, and that's what he says right at the very end. In verse 9, he speaks to those who are slaves, to those who are bond servants, right? He says, Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And as I read that, I'm, 
it's, it's a little shocking to me, this idea of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior, adorning the truth of God, adorning the gospel. What does it mean to adorn something? To adorn something is to make it more beautiful, is to make it more attractive. That's kind of the definition that you find when you look it up in the, in the dictionary. But, but the reality is, what can possibly make the gospel more beautiful than it is? The gospel of God, the truth of who God is, the reality of who God is, the fact that God is so incredibly loving and patient and compassionate and just that he was, he was willing to send his son to sacrifice himself for me even though I'm a sinner and I don't deserve his love. What is more beautiful than that? There's nothing that can make that more beautiful. So how is it possible that he says that, that slaves, these Christian slaves, can make the gospel more beautiful than it is? And I, I think the point is this. There isn't anything that can make God more perfect or beautiful or, or attractive. However, I think that, that the way that the slaves respond to the gospel has the potential to highlight the beauty of the gospel, to draw people's attention to the beauty of the gospel. And that's what I think he means by adorning the gospel. In other words, I don't know if you've ever known somebody for a, a you know, a length of time, and, and, and there's a moment where you're sitting maybe across the table from them, and then you look at them, and you're like, I never realized how amazing this person's eyes are. They're, they just like have this incredible color to them. I've known them for so long, I've never even noticed this. And the reason you're noticing it is why? is because they're wearing a certain color, you know, that all of a sudden makes you notice what has been there the entire time. That this person has amazing looking eyes, right? Or, or maybe, have you ever watched a, a home um, renovation show where, where the family kind of walks in after the, the person has remodeled their living room and, and they look at the living room and then they, then they notice the fireplace, the mantle, the, the brickwork, the stonework around the fireplace. They're like, that is amazing. And yet it's the same fireplace that's been there the entire time. And yet the walls are painted differently and the furniture is arranged differently to draw your attention to the fireplace and to notice how amazing and glorious it is. And I think that's what God gives the slaves here in Crete the opportunity to do. I think that's what God gives all of us who know him the opportunity to do. To draw attention to the beauty and the glory of the saving, life-transforming work of Jesus Christ. Our lives have the potential not to make God's work in Christ more beautiful, but to put a spotlight on it, to, to direct people's attention to its beauty and power so that others are attracted to it as they should be. How does this happen? We'll look at the particular commands to the slaves. Basically, Paul says that the life of a slave that accords with sound doctrine is a life that is unexpected and gracious. It's a life that is unexpectedly gracious. These slaves have a legitimate right to say, I don't deserve to be owned by someone else. I don't deserve to be a slave anymore. Especially if they're in a household maybe with a, a master who's become a Christian. You know, I, I, I should maybe fight for my freedom. I, I, you know, or, or maybe if they're in a place where they feel like they're being unjustly treated, they, they have a right to complain and to be argumentative. They have a right to, you know, if they, can't, if they aren't given what they deserve, they have a right to, to pilfer, to steal, to take what they deserve. 
And yet, what does Paul tell Titus to encourage him to do? He says, be submissive to your masters in everything. Instead of arguing, seek to be pleasing. Instead of pilfering, instead of stealing, instead of taking what you think is rightfully yours, be faithful and serve and bless. You know, um, He's telling the slaves to to lay down what they might think is rightfully their their kind of course of action and instead seek to serve for the good of their master. Essentially, these are all characteristics that take after Jesus, aren't they? Who gave up his rights and even his life for sinners who showed himself faithful when we were faithless, who has given us grace and kindness when when he had the right to condemn us. This is the kind of life that adorns the saving work of Jesus, a life that demonstrates unexpected grace to the people around us. How we're quick to give up what we think we have a right to in order to serve them, to submit our rights and, and put them underneath the good of the people around us. How we bless and encourage when others when we feel like they don't deserve our encouragement. How we give when we, have a, when we think we have a right to take. This draws attention to the gospel because it helps people see and understand the gospel better and even experience the gospel in very practical ways. So these 10 verses confront us with a big task. No matter who you are, there, there are a lot of commands here, right? And if you remember last week, I mentioned that one of the issues that Paul was addressing with Titus is these false teachers that were contaminating the truth of God. They were contaminating the gospel by saying, look, you need to, Jesus isn't quite enough. You need to follow all these other rules. Maybe these Jewish rules, you know, circumcision, and all these other things that make you clean or unclean. You need to follow all these rules. And, and so, and so this, is this consistent though? Now, now as, as Paul has said, you need to, to you know, deal with those people and silence those people. And now immediately in chapter two, he starts giving everyone a bunch, another set of rules and commands. Is Paul being consistent here? What is the difference between the, the rules and commands that these other teachers are encouraging them all to follow and these commands that Paul is encouraging Titus to give the people. And I think the difference is found, if you remember, at the end of chapter one. The last verse in chapter one, it's not printed in your order of worship, but it simply says this. He, he says, these, essentially, these other teachers, these false teachers, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. See, he criticizes them because he says, you know, they say they know God, but it's obvious they don't because they're not living a life that that is obviously, intimately connected to God. And and the, the list that he gives here is therefore, as he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine, with with healthy doctrine, with the truth. 
with the truth of who God is, with the truth of knowing God. These things that he's encouraging them to live out right here are, are attributes, are characteristics of people who actually do know God. That is the difference. If you have come to know the gracious love of God that he has poured out on you through the work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has lived and died for you because he loves you and he's risen again, and and he's poured out his grace upon you, then it's natural for your life to be exhibiting this kind of grace. If you've experienced that that love, if the older men have experienced that love, then it's, it's natural that they would live lives of love. If you've experienced the life-transforming power of God, the one who who has greater power than anyone or anything in all of the universe, who who sustains and and rules over all the universe, then then it makes sense that you would be able to have power over your own life and be self-controlled, right? This is a list uh, that describes a person who actually knows God. the greatest person in all the universe, the one who has created all things, the most loving one, the most good, the most powerful. If we truly know him, that there's, there's going to be evidence of, of a changed life. And that's why as people look on, they will be silenced. That's why as people look on, they will be attracted because they see the power of God working in us to make us different. It's going to be obvious. These are people who actually do know God. And this is what we need to strive towards. Not just figuring out how can I be more reverent in my behavior? How can I be more steadfast and faithful? How can I be better at showing grace? The ultimate question, the foundational question before all those other questions is, do I know him? Do I know his love for me? Do I know his power? And as we, as we answer that question for ourselves, it will radically impact the perspective of the world, of those who know us and hopefully those who will know him. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray that you would help us. Um, help us as, as, that, that we wouldn't just walk away from this passage and move on with the rest of life, that we would actually look at these characteristics, at these attributes, these things, and, and consider, are they being displayed in my life? How might they be displayed more. And, and, and Father, we pray that, that, that as we do that, we would also think about how these attributes reflect who you are. Because that's the real task before us, is to know you. So that we might not just profess to know you, but that our works and our lives would back it up. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In response to God's word, let's take a moment to confess our sin, our failure to reflect who God is. With the prayer that's printed in your order of worship, it's also up on the screen. Please pray with me.
Almighty God, we believe that your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is coming again in power to judge the earth. We confess that we have not lived as those who daily expect your kingdom. We have spoken harsh words, thought impure thoughts, and lived casual lives. We have ignored your promised judgment by not loving you with our whole hearts or our neighbors as ourselves. Have mercy upon us and forgive us for all our offenses. In your tender kindness, embrace us with your fatherly love and fill our hearts with the joyful expectation of seeing Jesus soon, face to face. We offer our prayers through him. Amen. Father, we now take a moment in the silence to confess our individual sin to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Isaiah 53, 5 says this, but he, that is Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Let's continue to worship him.